Well, good evening. Good to see you guys. We are in Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, chapter 3. And we've been going through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And as we've seen, there are, in this first section, in chapters 1 through 3, snapshots, we'll call them, snapshots of the relationship between this bride and the bridegroom. It's a romantic relationship. We talked a lot about this. We've had several studies already. But this is an Eastern love poem, and and its primary interpretation and application is that of talking about romantic love. But because the Bible takes romantic love between a man and a woman and uses that as a picture of not just the bridegroom and the bride, but Christ and the church— There's a lot to be learned as well, in addition to learning about human sexuality and relationships. There's a lot to to learn about our relationship with Christ and what that should be like. So we'll look a little little of both in Song of Songs, chapter 3. But we're getting to the end of what is, or what has been, ten snapshots. These are the last two. We looked at four, then we looked at two, and then we looked at two, and then here we are now looking at the last two snapshots. I use that term because they're, they're little pictures of aspects of their relationship. We are not given the entire history, but in a poem many times, a picture or a snapshot is sufficient to represent the whole. So as we've been going through this, I've pointed out the relationship and, and how the relationship grew from the beginning of the relationship right up into the place where this couple has fallen in love and prepared to be married. And now we find this couple getting married. And so this evening in chapter 3, we're going to see the wedding day, and we're going to see those uh, times shortly before the wedding day, uh, including the pre-wedding anxiety, which anyone who's gotten married, especially in our culture, uh, knows is a very real thing. Uh, you know, I was, I, was talk, I was speaking with someone who's getting married this last weekend, and, and it was interesting because you could just see the the degree of anxiety that this individual is feeling, just the planning. They're getting married in September. And just the, the plans and all of the things that need to be done. And you could just see uh, the woman, she was pretty excited about it. The guy, he was not so excited about it. He was just kind of like, ah, so much to do. But there is a lot of pre-wedding anxiety as well. We'll talk some about that. So we find our couple in this love poem right at the place where they are getting married. And we'll see that This evening in chapter 3, let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We are grateful that you speak to us not just about spiritual things from your word, but about human things, romantic love, intimacy, the things that describe the human condition, the, the human experience. And we're grateful because you've given us your word on these subjects so that we're not confused because the world is so perverted and destroyed romance and sexuality to the point where it's, it's hard to think about studying these things or even talking about them in a church and studying from the Bible. But indeed, you have given us this book in your word, a book that's all about romantic love, not just, not just so that we can understand and appreciate your blessing of romantic love, but also our relationship with you. For you really truly are the lover. We are the beloved, and we know that you have given all to save us. And while the relationship is different, the similarities between the bridegroom and the bride 
and you and your church are so strong, so clear. We pray that through our study, we would gain a better understanding of your love for us and love you more in return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses 1 through 5, there are two snapshots this evening. The first is in verses 1 through 5, and this is the pre-wedding anxiety. And as I've shared with you before, each of these snapshots were taken by either both of the individuals or one of the individuals or someone else. In this case, it's a snapshot, if you will, a picture, poetic picture, taken by the bride. And it starts with her having a dream. And many times when we're experiencing anxiety, we have some pretty crazy dreams. And they do come out, you know, those anxieties do come out in our dreams. So we'll start by looking at Song of Songs, chapter 3. Let's read in verse 1. And this is the bride, as you can see, the bride speaking in soliloquy. That is, she's speaking within herself so that we can understand what she's experiencing. Upon my bed in the night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but did not find him. I will arise now and go about in the city, in the streets, and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed from them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to the house of my mother, to the room of the one who conceived me. And then in verse 5, The bride is now speaking to the chorus, or the daughters of Jerusalem, that is the other women in this chorus. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the hinds of the field, not to arouse, not to awaken love until it pleases. So there's our first snapshot. And again, this translation is a little bit better than the NIV. So when I teach this book, I like to use it, which is why I provided it on the screens. But as I said, it's not that different from modern translations. Where it is very helpful is that it's very good at determining who is speaking and to whom. And for that, it's very helpful. But let's look at the pre-wedding anxiety. She's dreaming of losing the person she loves. That's what she's talking about in verse 1 when she says, I sought him upon my bed in the night. I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. She, she's having this moment of anxiety where she's lost or is unable to find this person that she's about to marry. There's that sense of fear of losing someone. This is obviously her greatest fear. And many people have fears, but the fear of losing someone you love, as a parent, losing your child in the mall. I mean, there's nothing more terrifying, right? Nothing more terrifying than, especially a young child, you know? Teenagers are like, ah, they'll come back when they get hungry. No, I'm just kidding. But (laughs) when they're young, you know, little and they can't fend for themselves, oh my goodness, it's a horrifying experience. Even if they're just out of sight for a few seconds, you, you panic. But in this fear, this anxiety, she's thinking about what would life be like without this person. Hopes and fears precede life's most important events. And so, of course, a wedding, uh, I've talked to people, and it's so true. You have some of the strangest dreams leading up to your wedding in terms of, like, all kinds of wild, crazy concerns and anxieties. Nightmares are often brought on by stress as well, and we know that. If you have a lot of stress in your life, you have a tendency to dream about it, which is not so cool because you're trying to get some rest and sleep so that you can better deal with stress, but, of course, it follows you into your sleep and into your Uh, dreaming. 
But her dream illustrates the intensity of her love for her fiancé, that she loves him so much that she fears losing him. And so in the dream, she dreams of urgently pursuing him in verses 2 and 3. She says, I will, uh, I will arise now and go about the city and in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. And then she mentions the watchmen who go about the city. They found her and, and she says, ah, have you seen him whom my soul loves? You see, she now dreams of urgently pursuing him. Sleep gave way to anxious longing for her love. And, you know, four times she refers to her fiancé as... Him whom my soul loves. Him whom my soul loves. Now, loving someone with all your heart will make you, indeed it must make you, completely vulnerable. And a lot of people have a hard time with this because being vulnerable is a scary thing. But to be in a relationship, a romantic relationship, a love relationship that ultimately leads to marriage, is to make yourself completely vulnerable, which is why some people choose not to get married, because they're not comfortable with the idea of being vulnerable. It's also why some people get married and they don't have a good relationship, because there's an unwillingness for one or both people in the relationship to make themselves vulnerable. You can't have a relationship unless you make yourself vulnerable. That's true for friendships, that's true for family, but especially true for romantic relationships, and especially between a husband and a wife. And so she has made herself completely vulnerable, and when you make yourself vulnerable, you fear. It's natural to experience that fear. And so she dreams of losing him or losing... uh, track of him. And then she dreams of pursuing him. And in verse four, she dreams of finding him. Look, verse four, scarcely had I passed from them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to the house of my mother, to the room of the one who conceived me. Here, she dreams of finding him. Having found him, she holds on to him ever so tightly and won't let go. So this is the kind of anxiety someone who's made themselves vulnerable feels before a wedding, even after they've gotten married. Anyone who makes themselves vulnerable is going to have to contend with the fear of, oh my goodness, I've made myself vulnerable. What if something happens to this person? What if if it doesn't work out? What if they break my heart? And this is why a lot of people are really careful or they really have a lot of uh, caution about getting into a relationship. And, and indeed, you should really know somebody pretty well uh, before you enter into a relationship like this because you are making yourself completely vulnerable. You know, and there are, you know, tragedies happen, but apart from tragedies, relationships fail. And it's sad, but it's true. We live in a fallen world. And sometimes they fail for no fault of one person. Just the other person refuses to... Be the person that they promised to be. What can one do? They'll suffer loss. That's just, that's part of making yourself vulnerable. So saying I do, entering into a marriage, listen, if, if you don't count the cost, if you don't consider the fact that you're laying it all on the line, uh, you're unwise. There are many people that just sort of enter into marriage without thinking it all the way through. I think probably trust is the most important aspect of easing that fear When you make yourself vulnerable, you better trust the person. 
I think that's one of the most important things. You can get angry with a person you love. You can get frustrated with a person you love. But as long as you continue to trust them, it'll work out. When you lose trust in a relationship, you lose an awful lot. Sometimes you lose the relationship. Now, having found him, she holds on to him ever so tightly and won't let go. Now, subconsciously, in her mind, in her dream, she brings him to a place of great security and stability. There are people that analyze dreams. Sometimes it's not hard to figure out what a dream means. Sometimes it's, it doesn't mean anything at all, except that you ate too late and too much, and your mind got kind of wonky because you upset your body too late at night. But in this case... She brings him to a place of great security and stability. I mean, we, we know these phrases, home sweet home, or as Dorothy said when she clicked her heels, right? There's no place like home. Home has a special significance because it, it, what it does for us, it brings us to a place of security. Uh, if you've gone through a difficult time, just being home. Even if you go away for two weeks, just getting home and being in a place that you're comfortable. It offers a degree of security. How many bad dreams have been comforted, especially among children, in a mother's bedroom. I mean, that's where kids run when they have a nightmare. So you could see why she would say this. Now, one of the things that's not stated but implied is that when she says, I would not let him go, and I brought him to the room of the one who conceived me, it kind of skips over to this encouragement. When she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the hinds of the field, not to arouse, not to awaken love until it pleases. She has mentioned this a few times in this poem. And every time, it's like their relationship gets really, really close romantically. And then she encourages the daughters of Jerusalem, you know, don't go too far until it's time. And that's an encouragement for physicality and sexuality in a relationship to only be experienced after marriage. But it doesn't mean that she doesn't want to be intimate. It doesn't mean that she doesn't think about it, by the way. Uh, of course, someone who's engaged and moving toward marriage, especially so close to marriage, you, or, is going to think about this a lot. It makes sense. It's not as if they, they suddenly wake up and realize, oh, I'm getting married. Oh, I'm going to be intimate. I, I'm going to be sexually involved with this person. Hardly. The way we're built, the way God designed us, that desire, that longing exists and in greater measure over time leading up to the consummation of that relationship after marriage. So it makes sense that when she says she brought him to what is essentially her mother's bedroom, that, that she's thinking about that. She's looking forward to that moment after they get married. But she also makes it clear after you get married is the appropriate time to enter into that aspect of the relationship, that experience of sexuality. Again, I adjure you in verse 5, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the hinds of the field, not to arouse, not to awaken love until it pleases. And love should be pleased to awaken when there's commitment. We talked about this recently. When there's commitment, a life commitment of marriage. So, though she dreams of intimacy... She lets the flower blossom in its proper season in their relationship. And now that fears are abated in her dream, she wakes to once again counsel the young maidens to be patient in love. Today, very few people are patient in love. They fall in love, they have sexual desires, which is a normal aspect of falling in love, and they just give themselves over to them. 
Many people in the church, unfortunately. You know, we, it's as if we've rewritten uh, the moral code and suggested, well, you know, this is 2024. You don't have to wait until you're married. Uh, but he, we've talked so much about this already. Uh, listen, uh, uh, the truth of God's word is that sex is to be experienced and enjoyed within marriage and the commitment of marriage, not before, which is essentially what she's saying in verse 5. So we've seen this cycle of courtship, and courtship is dating, but it's dating that leads to marriage. The courtship, the cycle of courtship, started with expectation, with longing. It moved on to communication with patience, and finally discovery with reward. There's that cycle of of growing closer to that person. You you long to be with them. Uh, You communicate with them. You take your time. You don't rush into the relationship. And then over time, you discover and you're rewarded for taking the time to become intimate, not physically, but intimate with them emotionally, intimate, romantically, not sexually, not physically, not yet. That comes out loud and clear. Now, the second cycle of their courtship will be fulfilled on their wedding day, when physical intimacy will be lovingly expressed. And we'll actually get to that next week. Next week, we'll look at their honeymoon. And it's it's, it's talked about. It's it's not pornographic. It's not inappropriate, but but it's direct. You know, it, it, it says it. And so we'll see that. And if you're really interested, you can read ahead. Nothing will be all that embarrassing, but we will be talking about sexual intimacy as we talk about this couple moving from being engaged to being married and then going on their honeymoon. So we will talk about that next week. But for this evening, this was the wedding anxiety, the pre-wedding anxiety, and it resulted in the bride uh, becoming anxious and fearful, but ultimately drawing closer in her heart to the bridegroom. And so you have that ninth snapshot taken by the bride. Now we get to the 10th, and I'm going to ask Jill if she wouldn't mind bringing up chapter 3, verse 6 on the screen. And uh, here now we have a snapshot, and this is a snapshot of the wedding day. All right, this is uh, verses 6 to 11. This is the wedding day we're going to talk about. And of course, if, if you've been married or you are married and you had a wedding, then you know that it's a crazy day. It's a blur. Uh, everyone else remembers it better than you do. So what you do is you hire a photographer generally. Uh, Sometimes they'll put the little cameras on the table so people can take pictures, but uh, I guess that's a thing of the past by now because everybody has phones. They have these amazing digital cameras right in their pocket. So uh, there are a lot of pictures that are taken during a wedding, and uh, if people are still hiring photographers, and I assume they are, uh, you'll, you'll have someone try to capture for you the wedding day because... You yourself are dealing with all kinds of anxiety and fear and nervousness and who knows what else. And it's just, it's a blur. People told me that before my wife and I got married. You know, you're not going to remember anything on your wedding day. I I remember very little. It was just sort of a blur. It was great. I have great memories. But it's not as if I remember it the way I would remember something else. It it, it was just, there was so much. It was so intense. You know, it was just, my goodness, over the top. Emotions, family, friends. You know, I definitely an experience I remember, but not the way you remember other experiences. So this last snapshot is the wedding day, but it's taken by, I mean, they didn't have photographers back then, but it's taken by someone, uh, uh, in this translation, it's called the poet. It's taken 
as if by a photographer, someone outside the relationship looking in. So a wedding guest, if you will. Someone at the wedding is now describing the wedding for the couple and also for us. And so we're going to read. I'm going to read verses 6 through 11. We'll make some comments, and uh, that'll be it for this evening. So we we pick it up in verse 6, chapter 3, in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. The poet writes, What is this coming from the wilderness like columns of smoke, from the burning of myrrh and frankincense, made from all the scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the couch of Solomon, 60 mighty men around it from the mighty men of Israel, all of them wielders of the sword, trained for battle, each his sword at his side for protection from the terrors of the night. A palanquin, or a carriage, a palanquin King Solomon made for himself from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple cloth, its interior inlaid with expressions of love from the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of the gladness of his heart. So the poet captures in verse a picture, the final snapshot, of this couple leading up to their wedding. And it's that beginning, that moment when the wedding ceremony begins. Now, ceremony and tradition continue to mark the great events of life even today. I have, I have noticed, this is my own observation, that back in the 80s when my wife and I got married, uh, weddings were, were a, a little bit more formal. Now, I think especially after COVID, people have decided to kind of back up and maybe be a little less formal, a little more informal. Uh, There's less expectation on wedding ceremonies and even on receptions today. People are choosing to have very, very scaled down weddings because, let's face it, (laughs) they're expensive. I mean, I know people that have spent a small fortune. Uh, I mean, money that they could have almost bought a house or certainly put down a down payment on a house uh, on weddings. And so today, we've become a little bit more casual in our society. And also, people are, you know, trying to make ends meet. And COVID kind of set the bar low because during COVID, I mean, any ceremony, whether it was a funeral or whether it was a wedding or anything, was scaled down to the minimum, you know. And, and, and so I think now people started to realize, you know, you really don't need to have such a big to-do in order to get married. And I, I think people are pulled back a little bit. But ceremony and tradition continue to mark the great events of life even today. Now, this is appropriate since marriage marks the entrance into a whole new way of life. Indeed, if there was going to be one moment of celebration in your life, certainly this would be it, right? I mean, it's a significant event. It is a divine institution that speaks powerfully of our relationship with God as to become one. And so it's an important ceremony. And there's a lot of symbolism in even our wedding ceremonies in our culture, but certainly in the ancient customs and in Judaism. Remember also that this couple patiently waited to give themselves to each other on this day. That's important. Remember, they've been patient. They've lived their lives in subjection to God and his word as it relates to the physical aspects of their relationship. And listen, not doing so would have surely lessened the significance and importance of this glorious day. And, you know, in the world today, sadly, sometimes in the church, but in the world today, people will live together and then they'll get married. They'll have kids. 
and get married afterward. I mean, it's just the way it is. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just saying things have changed a lot in my lifetime because that was almost unheard of when I was young. But now it's, it's, it's no big deal. People, they move in together. They live like they're married. They're not married. They have a family. And then one day they decide to get married. Maybe not. Certain cultures, I know in Scandinavia, it's become very unpopular to get married. People just live their lives and they don't bother with the ceremony. Now, let me say this, and I've said this before. Ceremony doesn't make you married. Married in the eyes of God is married in the eyes of God. In our culture, though, we formalize it and it makes sense to. But even if you didn't, if you're living before the, before the eyes of God and you've been married in the eyes of God, that's what we're talking about. A piece of paper uh, from the city in which you live or the state is not what makes you married. That just validates that you are married legally. Uh, but truthfully, it's important to note that many, many people, they just sort of live their lives. So by that time, when you have kids and you've been living like you're married, if you do get married, I mean, is it really that big a deal? I mean, it's not certainly not the same as someone who has waited to spend their life with that person, waited to be sexually involved, physically involved. Uh, that really makes a wedding very, a very different experience for everyone, not just the couple getting married. So you have this wedding procession. And this may confuse you because in the ancient Hebrew culture, the wedding procession is reversed. You see, it's not here comes the bride, it's here comes the bridegroom. And Jesus referred to this in the parables. The bridegroom is the one that arrives. The bride just has to be ready and waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. Which is why Jesus used that as a metaphor or an allegory to describe his coming for his church. So the idea is the bride, we're the bride of Christ. We're supposed to just wait patiently. And then the Lord will show up and receive us. That's what we're waiting for. Now, in this ancient culture, there was a betrothal, a formal betrothal. And this would take place anywhere one to two years before the actual wedding. And this betrothal would be essentially a little bit more than an engagement and a little bit less than a wedding. Somewhere in between, it was a full-on commitment to be married, but it was open-ended. Because at that point, what the bridegroom did, having made that commitment, is said, in a short period of time, I'm going to return, and when I do, you'll be married to me, and we'll begin our life together. So what the bridegroom would do is go and prepare a place for the bride. The whole point. In the family's home, they would prepare a place. Sometimes they'd add on to the house or, or build another house. There was a, a preparation time, and during that time, all of the necessary funds and the place to live and all of the housewares and everything they needed to start their life together would be gathered, both by the bride and the bridegroom. And once all of these things were prepared, with very little lead time, the bridegroom would announce that he's coming for the bride. And he would show up, and the party would begin. And of course, a very different way of life. People were, you know, not so busy in terms of being here or there. They lived in very small communities, and, and uh, the announcement would come. And within a short period of time, uh, they would prepare themselves for what would be a feast and a party and a celebration. But it was always the bridegroom who initiated it. And so, of course, that pictures Christ and his church. Now, he arrives suddenly in this love poem in chapter 3. He arrives suddenly in an impressive display of power and majesty. This is a full-dress military wedding, but he is the king. 
He shows his ability and his desire to protect and provide for his bride by showing up in this grand way. And the king publicly reveals his personal character. See, he shows his very best. Notice it says a palanquin King Solomon made for himself from the timber of Lebanon. This carriage is designed to be impressive, but it's also designed to send a message of importance to the bride. We are probably old enough to remember some of the grander weddings that have taken place. Specifically, I remember in England, uh, some of the weddings that have taken place, especially, of course, Princess Di and, and Prince Charles at the time, now King Charles, when they, when they got married, the, the carriages, right, the fanfare, the military, the horses, all that stuff. You know, that's a, a regal military wedding. That's huge, very formal. And, of course, this was a very formal wedding. So he, he arrives suddenly with this impressive display of power and majesty and shows his very best for her in front of the whole kingdom. Now, one of the principles here, and it's an important principle, is that true love will bring out the best in each of us as well. It should, right? If you truly love someone, it should bring out the best in you, not the worst. There are people that get into relationships, and they're in a relationship, and that intimacy brings out the worst in them. That's a pretty good indication that you shouldn't move forward. A relationship should bring out the best in another person. Love is the mother of virtue and the father of maturity. I would say, I want to repeat that, love is the mother of virtue and the father of maturity. So love should make you more virtuous and more mature, not less. That's something you should look for in marriage and especially leading up to marriage. Being loved should bring out your best qualities. When someone loves you, it should make you a better person. It really should. Being in love should make you a better person. If being in love makes you a worse person, then you're probably either not in love or you're so immature you don't understand what love is. So, so there are people that get into relationships, and, and you've probably had people in your life like this. Uh, sometimes they get like, into a physical altercation. There's screaming matches. Police have to be called. Like, that's not love. And, and if it is a feeling of love, it's, it's, it's surrounded by so much immaturity that love cannot really proceed forward. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people in relationships. They truly care about each other, but they're so immature that they, they can't have a real mature and honest-to-goodness loving relationship. They're just not ready. And so those relationships are dysfunctional. Many times they're codependent. Many times they're just dysfunctional. They just, it, it would be better for them not to be together. That's the point. And when I see that, I call it, you know. Uh, it should be a logical choice that these people would be together. It should be obvious that they're better together than apart, right? But sadly, people ignore all the red flags and ignore the warning signs, and they move forward, and then they're surprised when things don't work out. Well, here you have someone who is not afraid to express their true love, and that comes out in these majestic ways. And one of the things you see there in verse 11, there's the poet saying, Go forth, O daughters of Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of the gladness of his heart. So you have this, this majestic scene with Solomon and, and, and his full dress robes, if you will, crowned as king. And then you have the Shulamite, or you have this country girl who, who, who he loves, uh, 
brought into this relationship with this king, it, it almost seems inappropriate. Why should this country bride be married to and be with a king who is a bridegroom? Well, there you have, of course, a beautiful picture of Christ's love for us. Why should we be so loved by Christ that we, the bride of Christ, would be brought into a, a ceremony like this? And yet the day is going to come. We call it the consummation. It's going to come when, 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 when the second coming of Christ happens and, and we find ourselves in his presence and we really don't even belong there. It's, it's like, who? who? We're, we're, like, we're nobody. And yet we're so loved by God that we're the apple of his eye, the object of his affection. We, we are th- those that he died to save. And so there's, there's a disparity here. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, the old English word was condescension. The idea that someone would stoop down. A condescension. What condescension? Someone stooping down beneath their station to help someone below them. And that describes Christ perfectly. He condescended. He came down from the throne of heaven to die on a cross for our sins and rose again on the third day to bring us newness of life. That love is described here and there's so much similarity in this relationship and, and it's intentional. It's designed to have more than one meaning. But here you see everyone can participate in joyous events as they share in the joy of others. Weddings are a day of gladness for all who share in the couple's happiness. Weddings are very happy times, should be, when a relationship is healthy and God is at the center of it and the couple has lived appropriately and properly before God, according to his word. And then all the people of faith and all the friends and all the family can celebrate this couple coming together. It's supposed to be a time of joy. This carriage, this palanquin was inlaid with expressions of love by others as well. And listen, every wedding is filled with expressions of love by mothers and fathers, friends and family members. Sometimes it takes the form of gifts. Sometimes it takes the form of serving. Whatever it is, people invest their lives in a young couple. And that's because they love those people and they want them to succeed. They want them to be blessed. And here we see that. Those that support a couple and help with wedding plans are blessed to look on with special pride. You know, when, when you do something for someone and you help someone and you guide them or you, or you provide for them, especially as a parent, uh, then the wedding comes and there's a special pride you have because you feel so invested. You know, the parents of the bridegroom, the parents of the bride, they're so invested. Their whole lives are invested in these people. So weddings become a very joyous time in a different way, but for them as well. Their love had become a fountain from which all could taste the sweetness of their joy. And shouldn't weddings be a joyful time for all involved? It really should. No doubt that this is God's wish for every romance today. But you can't experience God's blessings unless you do things God's way. We've spent three chapters talking about that. What is God's way? What are God's blessings? Everyone wants the blessings. Not too many people are willing to do what it takes to receive them. The, the, the greatest encouragement and exhortation is to be patient and, and to live your life upstanding before God so that when you enter into marriage, you enter into marriage in purity, you know, in purity. And people are unwilling to do that. And then they wonder why they settle for less in relationships and specifically and especially in marriage. 
And so here we have these last two snapshots, and they paint for us the picture of the relationship. Uh, coming to a place of fruition, this is the, the wedding day. And, of course, we'll pick up in the rest of the uh, poem. We'll, we'll look at the rest of their relationship moving forward. But at this point, we've mapped out in ten snapshots the kinds of things that should exist in a love relationship that honors God. And uh, we talked about them. I'll, I'll see if I can recap them for you. There were things we talked about in addition to the things we talked about this evening. Uh, some of the first snapshots uh, were the character of these individuals. We saw the character of the king. It was a, a snapshot taken by the bride, who the king is. And then the character of the bride taken by the bride, how she saw herself. And the character of the bride taken by the king, how did he see her? And then the character of the king, again, a snapshot taken by the bride, how she saw him. Then we saw the character of their courtship, which was sort of described by both of them, the character of their love, the character of their communication, and the character of their commitment. And that led us up to today's study when we talked about the wedding and the actual commitment and those things that led up to that commitment. But all of this should help us to understand something very important that if you want to experience God's blessings, you have to obey God. You have to do things God's way. This book has been given to us in his word so that we'll understand what that way is. It's up to us whether we want to obey God's word and be blessed. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much. You give us so much insight into romantic relationships that lead to marriage and marriage relationships that lead to family and blessing. And Lord God, we just only want to just absorb this so that we can live it out in our own lives. But also, most especially, we want to be able to reflect on our relationship with you and understand that as we look at the bridegroom and the bride today, that's us being loved by you. Your grand display of love and affection toward us and our unworthiness Oh, Lord God, we we fall so far short of that, and yet you love us so. So, Lord God, help us to know that we're loved. Sometimes we doubt that. Help us to know that we're loved and appreciate that love. And, Lord, to know that that day is coming when we will spend an eternity with you. Help us to apply all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.